how to pray. And he says the following, the first few Mondays were tough. I found myself running out of things to say after the first few minutes. So many of my prayers sounded like wish lists. I had had the good fortune to be reared in a godly home, and I knew the, quote, language. But after three weeks or so, the pastor quietly suggested that the following Monday, he would start to teach me how to pray. At our next meeting, after a half an hour of Bible reading and praise, he asked, what shall we pray for tonight? It so happened that I had just received a letter from a young woman who, uh, whom I will call Jane. The pastor and I both knew her from our time in another city. Jane's life had been in a mess before God saved her. Now, three years later, she was dying of cancer and was not expected to live more than a few weeks longer. Her letter was full of bitterness, hurt, and fear. What then should we pray for her? Lord, heal Jane? Lord, rebuke Jane for her bitterness? Lord, take her home quickly? She has already suffered so much? Or how about the unusual prayer? Or how about the usual prayer? Lord, bless Jane. The, ha the pastor helped me to think through these and other options. Certainly, we could ask that God would heal Jane, just as children ask their fathers for something. God could hear her and uh, could heal her, and we should ask so. But God hasn't pledged to bring instant restoration to all who ask for it. Was there not something that we should pray for Jane that was in line with God's own promises for his people? Something that we could claim with confidence on Jane's behalf? As the pastor led me through scripture after scripture, I was struck by the number and the beauty of the passages promising that God will keep his own people and that he will br bring fruit from their lives. We may be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The pastor and I were both convinced that God had began genuinely a good work in Jane's life. Now we would petition God to keep his promise and carry it on in the life of Jane. In a similar way, the pastor led me through several other matters for prayer, trying to get me to think biblically about what we should be praying for in each case. Uh, we read passages from Scripture that we thought relevant to each issue at hand. Then we set our ourselves to pray through the list that we had generated, quoting God's promises back to God, I left believing that I had begun to learn how to intercede before the throne of God. Later in the article, uh, Carson goes on to encourage several uh, suggestions to help us to pray. Part of learning how to pray uh, consider reading and rereading the prayers of Scripture. Study them. Turn them over in your mind. There's enormous di diversity in them, and they all have something important to say. Copy the prayers of Moses. Memorize David's Psalms. Meditate on the prayers of Hannah, Nehemiah, and Daniel. 
read through the Apostle Paul's letters and commit his prayers to memory. This is an article that I've read years ago, and the Lord has brought this article back to mind a few weeks ago. And as I have processed and thought through how should we begin uh, the year, how should we begin preaching uh, and listening to God's Word in the new year, 2021, uh, the Lord led me to consider some of Paul's prayers and to consider learning and retuning and realigning our hearts, our prayer lives uh, to the Lord and to the way the Lord has inspired His people in the Scripture to seek Him in prayer. So this morning, I invite you to open God's Word to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 15 to verse 23. Uh, Ephesians, chapter 1, uh, verse 15 to verse 23. And uh, as we open God's Word to this passage, it's different than our series through 1 Samuel. Actually, the, we'll be taking today and next week to work through uh, two of Paul's prayers. Well, let's hear God's Word. This is what Paul prayed for the church and for the believers in Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of of him who fills all in all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Let's ask God to bless the preaching, the proclamation of his word in our hearts as we hear. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And as we have opened your scriptures this morning, as we are gathered here for the first Sunday of 2021, we pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know you more. This morning, we pray for insight. We pray for the ability to hear well your truth. And Father, I pray for help and assistance in proclaiming this truth. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes with your word this morning in our midst. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. The book of Ephesians is divided in uh, two major sections. It's very easy to remember this division. The book has six chapters, and it's divided in half. The first three chapters, uh, verse, chapters 1, through 2, and 3, focus on the biblical teaching about God, who He is, 
what he has done for us in Christ. And uh, sections, the second section, chapters 4, 5, and 6, focus on the applications or the implications of how Christians are called to live in light of what God has done for us in Jesus. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, the theological chapters, we might say, are bracketed in chapter 1 and chapter 3 by prayers. In chapter 1 and at the end of chapter 3, Paul gives us two rich and beautiful prayers that he is praying for the believers. It's as if Paul brackets his theological teaching about who God is in the context of prayer for the believers. And uh, this morning, and Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we will consider the two prayers that bracket the theological teaching that the Apostle Paul teaches in this letter to the Ephesians. Today, we look at the prayer of chapter 1, and Lord willing, next week, we will look at the prayer from chapter 3. As we begin a new, new year, we can align our priorities, we can align our vision and tune up our prayer lives by considering how Paul prayed for believers and what he prayed for them. So join me this morning as we look at the first prayer in the book of Ephesians, um, prayer that Paul had for, uh, for this church. And this prayer can be divided in two major parts. Uh, this, the message this morning is going to be simple. Two major parts. The first point will be very short. The second point will be very long. Well, you get the point. Why Paul prays for others continually. Why Paul prays for others continually. That's going to be the first point. And the second, what Paul prays for believers. What Paul prays for believers. Why is he praying continually? Notice in verse 16 that Paul says that he never stops giving thanks for the believers in Ephesus as he remembers them in prayer. What would cause the Apostle Paul to keep praying for these particular believers? The Apostle Paul had many things on his plate. He had many issues going on, many pressures going on, and yet he says he does not stop get, call, praying for these believers continually. Now before we look at the answer, what would keep the Apostle Paul praying continually for others I want to ask you, what leads you to pray for others? Take a moment to just evaluate your pattern of when and how do you normally pray for other people. Typically, if you're like me, uh, it's very easy, and I hope you do this, whenever you get a message from Mary Catherine that says, prayer request for someone in our congregation that you would, you would take that to pray for others. Or if you get a text message from others in the congregation, you hear a news or a request for a particular problem or challenge that someone is facing. It could be a physical need, a health issue. It could be facing temptations. It could be facing certain challenges. I pray and hope that you pause what you're doing and, and begin praying. And you pray for the needs of others in the body. 
or others in your family or extended family or other acquaintances or friends that you have besides or beyond this body. It is great to be praying for others when we hear of their needs. It is wonderful to be able to commit those needs to our regular pattern and rhythm of prayer. But if our prayers are only for the specific needs of others, when we hear of those needs, we miss out an important part of praying for others. And the Apostle Paul's prayer begins with this, I might say and suggest, a neglected area of our prayers. He's not praying for the believers in Ephesus because he heard of some specific crisis that they were going through. Notice what causes the Apostle Paul to to pray continually for these believers. Verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Do, do you hear what the Apostle Paul is praying, uh, what causes the Apostle Paul to be praying for them? He's praying continually because he has heard of their faith and of their love towards all the saints. The reputation of these believers uh, was that their faith and love for each other was growing. And hearing this causes Paul to, to, to get triggered in his prayer life and to begin praying for them and to give thanks for them. The Apostle Paul did not limit his praying for others only to the list of needs or crises that he has heard from others. He prayed for those who are doing well in their faith and love for each other. And there's a number of applications for us, even from this introductory point about how we see Paul praying. Uh, do you take time in your prayers uh, to pray for those who are doing well? Or do you only limit your prayers to those who are going through some sort of crisis? Again, I am I'm so thankful and grateful for knowing that God has put people in our congregation, men and women, who are committed to pray when we're going through difficulties. And I know I can rely on the prayers uh, of the saints here when we go through challenges. But I want to learn from this little detail in Paul's prayer pattern and make sure and challenge us that we don't become focused to pray only for crises or needs in the lives of others. And let me encourage you one way to, to help you cultivate a rhythm of praying for others even though there's not a specific crisis request. One way to do so is to grab one of the membership directories, put it in your Bible, use it in your quiet time, and pray systematically. Consider praying for at least one person a day or a page a day. It includes five members uh, on a page. Consider praying systematically, even if you don't know or hear about particular needs that someone else is going through. Pray for God's people on a regular basis. Or, or consider when you see others manifest love towards each other. Consider taking time to thank God for those believers 
whether you are the recipient of that love or you are a witness of how others show that love to the body, consider taking time to pray and praise God for those. Take time in this year to observe how others are doing spiritually, how others are doing in their faith, to notice how the faith of others is going, how it's being lived out. I realize this, uh, this past year, it's been a difficult time for us to get together on a regular basis. It's been hard to, to stay connected with each other. As we look into, the, into this new year, I want to encourage you to, to be diligent and, and cultivate conversations where you can hear and see and ask about how others are doing in the faith or how others are doing in showing love towards one another. Is it possible that if you can see uh, the faith or the love of others, is it possible that, um, that part of that is our lack of connectivity? Or is it also possible that we uh, may not have an eye for those things, but it's easier to have an eye for doesn't, what doesn't go well? Sometimes it's not that faith and love is missing from others, and therefore, the reason why we don't see it is not because they don't have it. It's perhaps because oftentimes what clouds our vision is our own issues, our own frustrations, our own limitations that we see in other people. And therefore, uh, we don't have eyes to see the faith and love of others. Consider, my dear friends, as we begin a new year to have an intent vision to look and consider the faith and love of others. And when we see it, to praise God for it. And when we don't see it, instead of complaining or being frustrated by that, be the one who initiates it. Be the one who stirs others up to love and good works. Well, friends, I pray that if we are lacking in these areas, and I'm sure we are not yet perfect, that the Lord would help us grow to be a congregation in which the fruits of faith and love among the saints continue to grow despite the limitations of the pandemic. If hearing about the faith and the love of the saints caused Paul to pray continually for the believers, let's, let's see what exactly he's also asking for. He told us that he's, he's continually giving thanks for them. But he doesn't stop there. He also has petitions for them. What is the Apostle Paul asking for the believers in Ephesus? This is point number two as we look to Paul's petitions for the church in Ephesus. Uh, the petition is explicitly stated in verses 16 through 19. If we list these petitions, and if we try to make sense of all that is written in verses 16 through 19, we actually find out that Paul is really praying for one thing. It takes three verses to unpack what he is praying for them, what he's asking the Lord for them. But if we look at the, the, the logic of this petition, it's really one request. And that request is stated in the most explicit way in verse 17. Listen to, to the request, and then we're going to see how this request unfolds in some implications. But the request is this, the one petition, 
he has for them is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a summation of his complex petition, of his multifaceted petition. It's like one diamond with many facets to it. And the diamond could be summarized in, as a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of the Lord. And this is a request for, not for two kinds of spirit, spirit of wisdom on one side and spirit of revelation on the other side. No, it's really a spirit of, it's one spirit. The spirit of God is a spirit that imparts both wisdom and revelation in knowing the Lord. Uh, the fact that the Spirit is both a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing the Lord tells us what is involved in knowing the Lord. Knowing the Lord is not merely a matter of having the right information about God. The knowledge of God is revealed to us in the Scripture, but merely having the information of Scripture as mere information is not sufficient. We need the Spirit of God to impart us wisdom to understand what He has revealed to us in the Scripture so that we may really know the Lord. So Paul prays that God would give believers a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowing of the Lord. This shows the value Paul placed on believing and believers growing in the knowledge of the Lord. One of the effects of last year is that we had to cancel all our retreats. Our men's retreat, our women's retreat, the elders have tried to have their first retreat. None of those have happened. And uh, one of the effects of when we do have retreats, I often hear is uh, testimonies from members who say it was, it was so neat to be able to get to know so and so better. I had a chance to, to see this facet or this side of so and so that I did not know before. Uh, interactions with one another uh, in, enable us to get to know each other better. And even though we have a, a general or a, a, a medium level of knowledge of each other, when we spend time together for longer periods of time, it enables us to know each other better. Well, Paul desires and prays for believers to experience this greater knowledge of knowing the Lord. And the beginning of the year is a time in which it's appropriate for us to evaluate uh, what commitments, what resolutions, what new desires or goals uh, we want to pursue at the beginning of the year. Some make desires or resolutions about diet or about exercise or about the use of time or about the use of money or the not the spending or the saving of money, or about a host of things that you might uh, care about in your life. I don't know if you are a kind of person who likes to make resolutions or uh, new goals at the beginning of, the, of a new year. Whether you do it at the beginning of a new year or mid-year, having goals and evaluating what you're doing and desiring to do more or growing in a particular area in an intentional way uh, is a worthy exercise for us to consider. But I wonder if, if, if spiritually the knowledge of the Lord is an area that you desire to grow more in. 
the Apostle Paul teaches that this is a worthy goal to pursue. That's why he is praying for them that this would happen. And he shows us what we need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. We need more than mere personal discipline. We need more than mere personal commitments. Even though disciplining ourselves is a part of pursuing godliness. The Apostle Paul in this prayer says that we need more than personal discipline to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. He says that we need God to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing Him. That's why Paul begins this aim of knowing the Lord with prayer. He's praying for believers and asking God to grant them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing the Lord. Friends, consider praying this petition for your life. Consider praying this petition for those in your family, for your spouse if you're married, for your children if you have children, for extended family members, and pray this prayer for each other. Pray this prayer for the pastors of the church. Pray this prayer for ministry partners like Titus and Nadia Akim, like Ruth Fulmer, uh, like our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel University, like the missionaries who are serving with the IMB, uh, various ministry partners that we support, pray that the Lord would grant them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. But notice that this wisdom and revelation uh, in knowing the Lord, uh, it, it, turns, it does something in our own hearts. It's not mere download of information. It's so much more than that. Look at verse 18. What happens when, when the Lord grants a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing Him? Notice what happens in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is what happens when God grants a spirit of wisdom and not revelation in knowing Him. This means that our hearts are meant to see. Not merely to know. Our hearts are meant to see the truth of what God reveals to us. And I'm not talking here about needing to put a PowerPoint on the screen or giving in the bulletin some sort of visual so that you can get to see a picture of the truth. I'm not talking about that kind of seeing. Uh, there's another way the language of seeing oftentimes is used in, in the English language. When, when someone, or perhaps let's imagine if you're talking to someone and, and they're trying to explain to you something and they're not really clear and you ask for clarifying questions, and the second time they, they, they try to explain, it really makes sense. You, 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 you begin understanding what they're saying. Uh, it's common to hear, perhaps you catch yourself saying this, I see. You know, when I say that, I picture Ryan, because I hear that from Ryan quite often. I see. I think I understand better what you're saying. The language of seeing, we're using it as a means of saying, I get it. I follow your reason. I may not agree with you, but I see why you're going that route. The language of seeing is really a, a language of, of understanding, of comprehension, of, of being able to track with someone. 
And this is, the, this is a picture we get here about what the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, what it produces in our hearts. It produces the ability for our eyes, for the eyes of our heart to see, to be enlightened. So that Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus to grow in this kind of knowing God. The kind of knowing that grows in understanding God. In understanding what he's about. In understanding his truth. In understanding the logic of his truth and the way it affects our lives. I see. I get it. I understand. I feel I know you better, Lord, because I I understand what you are about. This kind of knowing God is not merely about having the right information about God, but about grasping the implications of such knowledge for our lives and applying that knowledge wisely to our lives. That's why the spirit of, it's not just a spirit of revelation in knowing the Lord, but a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So that we we take the revelation about God and we wisely apply it to our hearts. Friends, as you consider growing in the knowledge of the Lord this year, pray that it would be more than just a download of extra information about God, but that it would be a knowing that causes the eyes of our, fa- of our hearts to be enlightened so that you will see the truth about God and how it affects you in new and closer ways. Paul prays for such growth in the believers. And that growth, that God would uh, grant that growth through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. But notice, notice the effects. What are the effects of the spirit of wisdom and revelation when it enlightens the eyes of our faith? What are the effects And we see the effects, we see three effects in verses 18 and 19. These are not new petitions. This is not petition 2, 3, and 4. No, these are the results of petition 1 being answered. Does that make sense? So let's consider the effects when when the Lord grants a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowing in the knowledge of Him in such a way that the eyes of our faith and of our heart are enlightened, then we get to experience at least three things. Effect number one is the hope. We get to know the hope to which God called us. Look at verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. The destiny to which God has called His people is characterized by hope. In the face of brokenness, in the face of of great pain, uh, in, in the face of experiencing loss and grief and darkness or hopelessness, Paul wants Christians not to be paralyzed by fear, by grief, by pain, by loss, by darkness, but to know the hope of God's destiny for those who put their faith in Him. Having hope in today, these days, is, is in pretty great demand. I wonder if most people today are putting their hopes in what the new year will bring. In the vaccine that was just released. Or in hopeful, hopefully better financial situations. 
it is not bad to have hope for, for better circumstances to come around us and to come back towards us. I pray that it will be a better year for most of us. But this is not the hope that Paul is praying for. Instead, Paul is praying that believers will come to know the hope that God has called us to. It's not so much a hope in things that will happen to us here and now. It's more of the the hope that God has already called us to. It's certain. It's a hope that does not have its foundation in the beginnings of a new year, but in the destiny that God has prepared for His people before the foundation of the world. Oh, friends, a few chapters later, Paul speaks of this hope. In chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, There's one body, there's one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. When God calls us to salvation, He calls us to hope. It is a hope of an eternal destiny. Paul spoke of this hope also in the, in the letter to Colossians, which has a number of parallels to the book of Ephesians. In Colossians 1.5, the Apostle Paul says, This hope is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So what is the one hope that belongs to our calling? When God's spirit of wisdom enlightens the eyes of our hearts, we get to see and grasp hope. The hope in the God who will triumph against all evil. Hope in the God who will cause his people to triumph in, in the end against all evil. The hope is laid up for us in heaven. We will triumph over losses. We will overcome tears and sickness and injustice and even the grave. But the hope that God calls us does not mean that we somehow will not experience losses or tears or sickness or injustice or the grave. The hope that God calls us does not pretend that the troubles we are encountering today will somehow not affect us. Instead, the destiny God prepares for us through Jesus gives us reason to keep persevering through the losses, through the tears, through the sickness, and even through the grave. This past week, in the conversation I had with uh, Mary Catherine in the office, uh, she told me about the way the Lord has been changing her prayers. She used to pray primarily about the Lord healing the illnesses of her physical body. And she has said that lately she's been praying for more than that and differently, that the Lord will help her persevere through the sicknesses and the illnesses and the things that don't get cured. You see how that's a different prayer. It's more than just, Lord, get me out of this trouble. It's more like, Lord, not only get me out of this trouble, but Lord, help me persevere through this trouble if you choose not to take the trouble away from me. You see how that's a different hope? One puts the object only on the immediate deliverance of the physical pain. And there's nothing wrong for us to pray that the Lord would deliver us from the physical pain. I don't want you to walk away thinking that somehow that's a less of a prayer. It's just that it's an insufficient prayer if that's all you're praying for. Does that make sense? Versus praying that the Lord would help us persevere, keep our hope in Him, 
keep us strengthened through whatever the Lord allows us to endure because we have a hope in that which is beyond the sickness, the tears, the pain, the difficulty, and even the grave. Oh, friends, Paul wants his, these believers to, to know the hope to which God has called them to. And friends, Paul's prayer for these believers is that they would not only know the hope that God calls us to, but there's a second effect. Notice the second effect in verse 18. That they would know the riches of God's inheritance. Look at verse 18. That you would know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Now hearing about knowing the riches can mislead us if that's all we read. Uh, when we hear about riches, uh, the meaning of this word in the sentence is not referring to money or material possessions. It's not even talking about the inheritance that God will give us. Instead, look again at the riches of the inheritance that Paul is talking about. It's the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, some interpreters take this to mean the, the, the inheritance that God is preparing to give the saints. I'm not persuaded that that's the interpretation of this phrase. Because this is not about the inheritance that God keeps in heaven for us. There's a host of verses that speaks about that. Here, the inheritance is not the inheritance that God keeps in heaven for the saints. This is the inheritance that God has in the saints. In other words, God's inheritance are the saints. In other words, the saints, the people God has redeemed, are His inheritance. God's inheritance are His people. The saints are the portion that belongs to God. God's people are His treasured possession. As one Bible interpreter put it, puts it, God's people, compromising both Jews and Gentiles, are His inheritance, His own possession in whom He will display to the universe the untold riches of His glory. Oh, friends, if sinners like us are being considered God's inheritance, let that sink in. It is not because of any merit that we have brought to the table. It is not because we have brought our goodies to the Lord and said, Lord, look at, look at all we're bringing to you. Here's, here's our goodies. It's going to make a, a sweet inheritance, Lord. It is not because of that. It's quite the opposite. It is because the Lord has granted us sinners, rebellious people, who have turned our way, our back, to the Lord. The Lord has nevertheless brought us to Himself. He has repossessed us, and we are now His treasured possession because He has bought us. He has won us, wooed us uh, through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that in, uh, in this treasured possession, in this treasured inheritance, what is actually displayed is not our goodies that we bring to the Lord, is not our good works that we bring to Him. Quite the opposite. We see what we see is the, 
the goodies and the merits of Christ on our behalf that have been granted to us so that through his merit, we are now considered his treasured possession. Oh, friends, Paul's prayer is that we believers might grow in realizing the great value God places on the people he redeems through the blood of Christ. God's people are not merely a random group of people who seem to have uh, similar interests, uh, similar ages, or similar demographics. Oh, friends, God's people are a group of, of a mixed bag of all kinds of people who oftentimes have nothing in common except our sin and Christ. Christ. The saints are a display not of our good things or our good behavior, but we are a display of God's glorious grace. So to look at a group of Christians then, we should consider the high regard that God has for his people such that he calls us his inheritance. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Friends, is this how you view other people? Is this how you view others of God's people? When you consider other Christians, do you tend to first see their shortcomings or what frustrates you or what they fall short of? Paul challenges us to consider when we grow in the knowledge of the Lord, that we would grow in seeing the tremendous value God has bestowed upon His people through the grace that He poured on them in Jesus. Well, friends, if God made us His inheritance and thus be a rich display of His glorious grace in Jesus, let that challenge you and I to grow in how we value God's people. Third effect it has, when we understand the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowing of, of the Lord, such that our hearts, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, it produces a third effect. Not only the hope to which God calls us, not only to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, in the, in the gathering, the people of God, but also, thirdly, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us believe. And this is the last effect that we see. Uh, the, the Paul wants the, be, the believers in Ephesus to see as a result of, of getting a closer picture of who God is, of what we, he has done for us, that we would grasp the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us, for those who believe. Actually, when Paul speaks about the power of God for believers, he camps out here the longest. He actually devotes an entire paragraph verses, um, to the end of the prayer verse, from verse 20 on uh, to verse 23. Paul describes the power of God for us. And it's not a power that is directly applied to us. It's not like God shoots his power towards us in a direct way, in an unmediated way. Paul actually takes us on a detour to help us see that the power of God towards us is mediated. It's mediated through Christ. It is only granted to us 
in Jesus and through Jesus so that it's not a, a straight shot. God's power just comes straight to you. Just you and God. Just you and God. No, it's, it's you, Christ. Being united to Christ, you get the power. You benefit from the power. So let's see how this detour of God's power towards us is mediated to Christ. There's three subpoints of this particular dimension of the power of God for believers. God shows his power in Christ's resurrection. Notice verse 20. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. God's power was seen by overcoming an enemy that has plagued the entire human race. Because of our rebellion against God, the wages of sin is death. That plague, the plague of death, has affected every one of us, including Jesus. The one who is the author of life. The challenge is not how can the author of life be incarnate. The challenge is how can the author of life die. The reason is, the reason why he became incarnate was that he could actually die. How could, how could the author of life, the one who has immortality, die? His incarnation, him becoming human, was to fulfill what was impossible for the one who cannot die to die. But God made Christ to become a human to live a perfect life, and yet to take upon himself the guilt of our sins so that he would take upon himself the punishment, the penalty of our sin. That is death. But this Christ was able to take penalty, the penalty of our sin on him entirely, such that after paying for it in full, Christ overcame the enemy of death. This invincible enemy from which none of us can escape, physically speaking, has been ransacked by the power of God in Christ. But God showed His power in Christ, not only in, by raising Him from the dead, Christ showed the power in Christ by exalting Christ. Notice in verse 20, the manifestation of God's power in Christ continues uh, to be displayed through the exaltation of Christ at the right hand of the Father. Verse 20 and 21, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see the exalted status that God has granted Christ? Christ has received a status, an exaltation, that is not a step above every rule. He's not just, the, in, the, in the definition of leaders, oftentimes people say, you know, to be a leader, you just need to be one step ahead everybody else. This is not the way Christ is leading over all things. He's not just a step above everything else. He is far above all rule, authority, dominion, and power. And it, he's also far above any name that you can name. Why would names be important? Oftentimes, people of influence, if you have a name, you have a person who is very influential, if you, if you say that you know him or you, you happen to spend time with him, 
that's, that's like name dropping. Have you heard of that phrase, name dropping? People use name dropping as a means of, of, of smooth talking themselves into a situation. Uh, because names, especially of those who have power uh, or influence, names like that are powerful. And here we are told that Jesus has a name far above any name. And just to make it clear, it's not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, all this, this beautiful language describing the same truth in multiple ways is, is a way of saying he will never run out of office. He's got an office that no one can take over. He's got the highest office, and no one will take his office. His term, his term of authority will never expire. And then God shows not only Christ's exaltation, God shows his power in Christ also in his authority. There's another picture in verse 22. He put all things under his feet. He put all things under his feet. Imagine this picture. If, if the first verses of showing Christ's exaltation shows him high above every power, every rule, every dominion, the next picture here in verse 22, he shows everything else to be under his feet. It's a picture of authority, a picture of submission. But notice, notice what exactly is that authority for. Keeps going, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. God made Christ to be head over all things for one particular aim for the church. Friends, our society and culture increasingly rejects a notion of authority, of any authority except ourselves. To have power is to be viewed as oppressive. Our culture is claiming that any manifestation of power over others is oppressive and ought to be rejected. It is true that in a world corrupted by sin, often the exercise of human authority can become abusive and oppressive. That's true. We do not want to dismiss realities of, of corrupted authority that has indeed been oppressive to others. But friends, just because someone has power and it is entrusted to have authority over others does not mean that that authority is oppressive. God shows his power in granting Christ authority over all things so that God showed his power in Christ through his resurrection, through his exaltation, and through his authority as head over all things. But for what purpose? For the sake of the church. For the sake of the church. Not for the sake of you or me, individually. Not just so that you and I individually can run as lone rangers. It is a power and authority granted through Jesus for the sake of the church, the gathering of God's people, the, the community, the covenanted community of God's people whom God has revealed. Look again at verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Oh, friends, the authority of Christ now, at this time, is not visible to all people. 
It also does not benefit all people, but only the church. The world despises the authority of Christ over all things. Just think about the sexual revolution that we are an eyewitness to at this time that despises the authority that anything outside of ourselves can define our identity. Notice, who are the immediate beneficiaries of the authority of Christ? Paul says the church, and then he defines the church in verse 23, the body of Christ, and then he goes on to say, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power of God in Christ is to be seen first and foremost in the church. It means that the church is to be first to to recognize the authority given to Christ. The church looks to Christ as our head. The church looks to Christ as the one who feels who fills all in all. And when the church relies on Christ as her head, the church becomes the fullness of him who fills all in all. As members of the church, we must not forget that the only power and authority we have is not that which, which, which we can gain on our own, but the only power and authority we have is the power and authority of Christ. Because God has given all authority and all power to Jesus. This means that we do not have to fight with human means to gain authority or power in our society or in our world. Friends, we will be at our full potential. And I'm using that phrase to borrow a very common slogan in our culture today. We will be at our full potential only as we embrace and rely on our union to the head, to the one who fills all in all. The fullness of the church is only possible when we realize that we are not the cause of the fullness. But Christ fills all in all. What does that mean to say that Christ is the one who fills all in all? It means that he alone is sufficient to fill our lives with fullness. The cravings, the desires that we have, the dreams and the hopes that we have for ourselves can be filled and satisfied only by Him who fills all in all. Friends, as we look to a new year, it's tempting for us to look toward filling up what has been emptied in 2020, especially during the pandemic. But I pray that we would look to Christ instead to fill us with himself as he is the head. God has made Christ to be head over all things and given to the church. That means Christ is the head of the body. That means that we, as we contemplate and cultivate our union with Christ, the fullness of of the one who fills all things will fill us. And when the fullness of the one who fills all things fills us, we as a church will be the fullness of him who fills all things. I pray, for, I, I pray that we would be filled not with fear, not with suspicion, not with grudges, not with frustrations, 
not with judgmentalism, but that we, the church, will be the manifestation of the fullness of Him who fills all things. The church as the body of Christ is to be full with Christ, to be the fullness of Him who fills all things. And this means that when we look at each other, we're not supposed to see mere individuals, but to see people who are united to Christ just as we are. To see Christ in others. And when we see Christ in others, we treat others with the love and the respect and the charity of Christ, even when we have differences with one another. If Christ fills all in all, then I'm challenged to look at the members of the body of Christ, assuming that he fills them too. Just like I pray that he fills me. And even though they might be different than me, when I see Christ filling all in all in the body of Christ, then I'm willing to submit myself to others in love. And I'm willing to serve others and to seek their good in love. Why? Because in them, Christ also fills all in all. And when we act that way, and when we regard each other in that way, we truly will be the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I wonder, what do you want 2021 to be full of? For you? For your family? For our church? This picture of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe is not only to be taught but prayed for. This is why Paul's words here are part of what he's praying for believers. And we come back to the one request and the one petition. What Paul prayed for is for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowing of the Lord. Manifested or, or creating in us that new insight, that new understanding, that I see moment, I get it moment, so that it bears the fruit in the knowledge of the hope that we have, the knowledge of the riches of the inheritance in the saints that we have, the knowledge of the power of God that he manifested in Christ Jesus for our sake, so that we, the church, might be the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all things. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this year, and as each of us have different hopes and dreams and aims for this new year to be filled with, I ask and pray that above all things, you will fill us with yourself. Fill us with the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing you, in understanding you, and in knowing and understanding and grasping the benefits of knowing you so that we may live as a people who truly are united to Christ and show and put on display the fullness of Christ. In the name of him we pray and for his glory. Amen.